So we're recording this episode on Thursday, January 7th. <clears throat> Excuse me. To be clear, we're all three guys who came together because we're all trainers. That's, that's the kind of common thread that brought us together. So we want to talk about some of the things that are going on, the events that happened last night in the Capitol. But let's be clear. We're, we're not political science experts. I have a degree in accounting. <laughs> um, mm. But what I think we can bring to the conversation that may be helpful or useful for anyone is maybe just some thoughts on how to frame conversations, questions maybe we can ask ourselves or, and or other people to maybe make any of the conversations around this or anything for that matter more productive and more effective. Um, and Steve, you had mentioned something a, a moment ago that I thought was a really, a really good take so, on that. Yeah. So as as you look at any any type of situation where people have an emotional uh, an emotional attachment to their position and they are extremely enthusiastic and excited, when you have a, when you have an emotional outburst of any type and you are trying to react to something that you disagree with, that reaction, is it really getting you where you want to go? Is it really accomplishing what you want? And, and so, so many times people will, uh, you know, scream and charge at each other and beat each other up because they have a disagreement and they disagree with what the other person's opinion is. And is that charging and beating each other up really the end result that they want? that typically doesn't change hearts and minds by physical violence or whether it's, you know, damaging other property or damaging, hurting other people, you're not going to typically get a result from that. I mean, if you look at places like uh, India and Mahatma Gandhi years ago with just that peace movement, people can make changes, but they don't need to do so in a violent, emotional way, because it rarely has an impact favorably with society when you go into a, an emotional type of a, a reaction. Gideon, what are your thoughts? Yeah, um, it, it's kind of like I feel first coming from a third world country, you know, my, my, uh, expectations were a little bit i was in shock for sure but again like you say uh when you look at it from an emotional crashing moment you you wouldn't be able to learn much but if you step back and you ask yourself hmm could this have been done differently hmm uh what are we seeing do both sides really listen there are definitely lessons there to, to be to be to be taken home so that there's some elements of wow, there's some elements of how could that happen, and there's some elements of hmm, maybe we should process each other's feelings a lot more carefully. And so I feel like what I observed was momentarily the lighthouse, which is the United States, that gives out a lot of light to the world, became a light ship. By that, I mean a light ship, it's inside the water. It's 
stirred up. It, it is in the waves. It, 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 it's in the rains. The, all the other ships are passing by. It, 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 can also, it can also tip over. It can also capsize, which means if it capsizes, the rest of the traffic that's coming through will not have the benefit of that beam of light that directs mariners to sail successfully. So it really showed me the fragility, the fragility of these institutions, which are so powerful and have given hope to millions of people that have been raised in countries with dictators. So I felt like momentarily the lighthouse became a lightship and therefore the lightship could also collapse. So it's also something that I want to look at it in terms of us business people, trainers, when we have moderating ses sessions, there are moments when we cease to be the lighthouse. We get into arguments, fierce arguments with our folks. We become the light ship and the light ship can lose its way like any other ship. And once it loses its course, many, many, many more mariners would sink and perish. That was my initial uh, uh, processing. And I'm still processing it. I'm seeing in terms of details. I'm seeing a lot of details that I, I'm like, wow, I'm in shock. Like, I mean, real shock, guys, because I'm like, okay, this is unbelievable stuff. Yeah, so for, con for context, when I got up this morning and put the news on, this is still kind of yeah. an ongoing situation. It's not like this is behind us. This, yeah. It just started last night, this mm -hmm. raid on the Capitol building. Mm -hmm. um, and all the unfolding of things is still still going on mm -hmm. um gideon what you said reminded me of something um that situations like this i think any extreme situation tends to bring out the best and the worst That's in people true. um it tends to act like a almost like a magnifier and you will see uh, situations like this i always think of um I lived in South Florida in, in 1992 when Hurricane Andrew came through, which at the time was one of the worst uh, hurricanes in history in the United States. And it reminds me of that in the sense that you would see things like people scalping a, a bag of ice for $20. Mm -hmm. And then five minutes later, you would drive through a neighborhood and you would see a family on their lawn with a card table and like free hot food with a big sign saying free food yep. to anyone. Yes, sir. So an interest, I found it interesting that that magnifier also seems to have shown me the people that have the least seem to have the most uh, empathy. I think true. because they've been through lots of difficulties, it's very easy for them if they see someone else going through something to go, Hey, nah, I know what that feels like. How can I help? Uh, that was kind of one of the first things I thought of. Um, there was something this morning too, that I had not heard last night. There were two senators that just, I guess they just happened to be sitting next to each other when all this stuff started. And it was when they, they were, anticipating that the room was going to get breached, that people were actually going to come into the room. And the one Senator was a combat veteran and the other Senator 
had no experience like that. And she said, he just looked at her and put his hand on her shoulder and said, Hey, we're going to be all right. I got you. He didn't have a gun or anything. It wasn't like a, wasn't like he was saying, I'm going to physically take care of whatever. It was, it was really more like an emotional, Hey, we're in this together. I got you just hang in there. We're going to get through this together. That's, I think the number one lesson I took from that after that hurricane is I had a tight knit group of friends and family at that time. I grew up in that area, um, lived there most of my life. Um, and just that simple knowing that, Hey, as long as we stick together somehow, some way, I don't even know how, but as long as we stick together, somehow we'll figure this out and we'll get through this. And I think that seems to be the message I'm hearing starting to hear more and more as a common thread as they show interviews of different mm -hmm. senators and cabinet members and other leadership um, is this, Hey, we got to come together because a lot of us have, have not even done that. A lot of us have been more, you know, there's mm -hmm. been a lot of divisiveness. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Talk about the power of goodwill. It's like this podcast was born three guys in a rental car was born out of goodwill. I was basically the guy that was going to be either calling Uber back to the hotel, which I could, but you guys offered out of your generosity, hey, come on, jump in, let's go. And then the conversation started. And the conversation has given birth to many, many, many things that are good things. Now, you could have just turned your blind eye away and I would not have had the benefit of knowing you guys better, hanging out with you, sharing some, you know, brunches, I think uh, a beer here and there. Then later on, we went back for the conference, me and Steve hung out together. So out of that, many, many more things could still be born. So I'm thinking goodwill can really go a long way. So apparently, because of, if you look, but the, the beauty about United States is that it really trains everyone to look within and ask themselves, what do I bring to the table? And bring, the, bring out the best in you, even with the differences. But I need, and I think another element that we've lost in the course of that is a sense of mutual collectiveness. We still belong to one. In other words, uh, uh, very few countries have been founded on the, on the framework of doesn't matter where you come from, but if you're willing to contrib contribute, participate positively, you're welcome. And so if we can go back to that collectivist mindset, whether it's dealing with a pandemic, whether it's uh, looking after one another, I can guarantee that we will pick up the pieces from yesterday and do a lot better. And the, the truth is, if you ask the people around the world, they say, United States always tries different things. They always try many, many other options. And when all those options are filled, then they go back to the right thing. And I started seeing the votes that the senators and the other people were casting last night. The votes kind of indicate that, you know what, we've tried those other options. Maybe we'll go back to the best place, which is goodwill and common uh, collectivist uh, survival. I think that's a great observation, Gideon. I think you mentioned another thing. I mean, I know I have gotten a lot out of knowing you, and I'm sure John has as well. The, uh, you know, the one component I think that uh, is, is so important is that 
all three of us were going off to a conference by ourselves, so to speak. And, <laughs> and yet when you get together in a group, you become significantly mm-hmm. more uh, thoughtful. You gain so much more by being a part of a group like this. And so there is so much that I've gained from the two of you, but it's been, um, and it's been a situation where it's just been a lot of fun, you know, and without having that opportunity, that's one of the things that I think is extremely useful in this society is that piece that wherever you go, you can make common connections mm-hmm. and we have a whole lot more of things that we agree on than what we disagree on. Exactly. And we love to focus on our differences because those things are sometimes the things that we're so emotional about. <laughs> but uh, the underlying, like you talked about, it's the underlying things. That's like an ocean compared to, you know, the, the top 1% of the ocean. Mm-hmm. You just hit the nail on the head, Steve. I'm, I'm, I wrote this down when Gideon was talking, so I didn't interrupt him. The, asking ourselves what do we have in common because when we started hanging out together it was specifically because we had something in common Mm -hmm. we had this this thing this training that we were there for and so just because we had that one thing in common it almost seemed like it was just a natural thing to do like hey your hotel's right next to ours why would you get an uber that's silly just ride with us. It just seemed natural. Right. But it seemed natural because we had something in common. <clears throat> and I, I think people, some people today are unfortunately much more focused on what's different than what's the same. And I don't remember ex- the exact numbers, but I know I've read and heard this a bunch of times that like we have human beings share like 90 something percent in the same DNA across the planet. Oh, yeah. That's There's just true. an infinitesimally small percentage of our DNA yeah. Yeah. from from person to person that's different. Mm-hmm. We even share something like 90 something percent of the same DNA as trees, right? Yes. I mean, it's like ridiculous how much more we have in common than differences we have. But those are the things that we focus on. Mm-hmm. And I think some of it is education. Some of it is is nature, right? Because the nature of learning and, and Gideon, you're, you're the, the doctor here, the, the PhD in, in education, right? So maybe you can shed some more light on this, but correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the primary ways that we learn is we look at something new that we're trying to learn and we try to figure out how is it the same or different from something we already know and understand. Like we compare and contrast it. It's like this, but it's different in these ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think our education system and business practices tend to promote this kind of discernment or differentiation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not all negative. I mean, we, we have to, we're kind of uh, pattern recognition machines, aren't we? <laughs> to a certain degree. Like we're looking for patterns and, and things that degree. don't. Yes, yeah, so we're, we're constantly looking for things. <laughs> that don't fit a pattern because that's a red flag in, in a lot of cases, right? Um, Gideon, what are your thoughts on, on how much of, of these types of emotional reactions are high, hardwired versus, you know, the whole nature-nurture conversation? I, I believe there's obviously some of both 
in almost everything. What are your thoughts? Hmm. Uh, first, I want to acknowledge one thing you mentioned. A guy who studies, uh, it's a molecular biologist or now considers himself more as a neuro neuroscientist or neuroeconomist. <coughs> Paul J. Zak, one of my favorite people, studies what he calls the moral molecule. And the moral molecule is oxytocin, which is a bonding chemical in the human brain. And when it circulates into the body, it becomes a hormone. He actually lays this out very well. He says, if you go into one forest anywhere in the world, you capture a number of monkeys or gorillas, you synthesize their DNA, you're going to see they look so different. So different. But you say you can get a human from Papua New Guinea. You can get one from China. You can get one from America, from South America. And you, you break it down to the DNA. It looks so similar. So that, that point you're making is kind of well, well, very well documented. But back to the uh, idea of nurture and nature. Nurture, I think, if you look at the nurturing of American democracy, there are written laws, there are unwritten laws. Now, I'm just speaking as a guy who takes some time to, to read up about the country in which he lives, and I've lived in a number of other countries. The nurturing, there are written rules, there are unwritten rules, but most of those rules have been the unwritten ones, which means, hey, if I agree with you that I'll be somewhere at 6 a.m., no matter what, the night was like, I have to get back up and try to be there. That's kind of like we've been nurtured that way here. In some other places, somebody could still show up 30, 40 minutes late and still want to make a case that he, he or she was there. That's not cool. And I think it's the same thing with, with, with American democracy. The founding fathers could not write down everything. If you want to write down every rule that exists, you will not get anything done. So those written or unwritten rules need to find ways to prevail. And in the same light, when we make uh, conversations with friends, with family, every now and then we look at the level of the nurture. But the nature too is who are we? What are our written codes? When we look at all of those, we combine them, we begin to realize, hmm, wow, yesterday was clearly... Uh, a breakdown in the nurture and in nature. And so we need to go back to the table, perhaps, and look at what you mentioned, John, the common things that hold us together. And acknowledge first the beauty in the other person. I, I really feel strongly about this. See the beauty in the other person before you criticize them. What is good about the other guy? If we acknowledge that, I think we would at least in some way begin to find or heal the wounds. Don't just come in to critique me or I, I shouldn't just come in to critique you, but say, you know what? Let's Out of the 10 things we're going to talk about, where do we agree? Five, boom. Five, let's, let's make sure that we get these ones done first. Then we focus on the other five. Why do we tend to focus on the other five? Because differentiation is what makes us stand out. And in a capitalistic society, differentiation is the one thing that gives us a competitive edge. But we cannot mm -hmm. lose sight of the fact that collectively, we belong. 
if the tide rises, it raises all the ships. So we should still start by looking at what is the beauty in the other person, acknowledge that, then we'll go from there. That that that's my my little thing. I don't know if it has any it has nothing to do with uh, my educational background, just my take as a human. Well, I, I asked you specifically because I know you've I won't speak for Steve, but you've I know you've studied this area a lot more than I have. The as you were talking, the word that jumped to my mind was culture as so, sort of a, I guess, like a catch-all for, for some of these different things you're talking about, like the, the unwritten rules mm-hmm. of how we do things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just made me think about, I, I grew up in what I, I think was a pretty culturally diverse background across the board as a, an army brat. Um, the military uh, is predominantly um, minorities. I think Hispanics and Blacks and, and other minorities are, are a larger portion of our United States military forces than, than others. And having moved around a lot, I think I just grew up not realizing that that wasn't like a typical for some people that maybe grew up in the same town and you know we're surrounded by a sort of a homogenous looking and feeling kind of culture and so to me it's always seemed strange when people looked at differences negatively i mean i can distinctly remember going to friends and asking them about their culture and it almost feels like today like like you have to be careful if you ask someone <laughs> because you're, you're concerned that you might offend them mm-hmm. by just even bringing up that their, their culture is different or whatever. <laughs> or I'm really, I really find it odd when I hear people talk about cultural appropriation. Like, hey, you can't cook that food because that food is typical of Latin America and you're not Latino. That's cultural appropriation. And to me, I'm like, are you kidding me? That's one of my favorite things about having friends from different cultures is learning yeah. about their cultures. And exactly. Hey, dude, can you give me your mom's recipe for that thing that, that you had at your house the other day? That was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what yeah. do you think about the, the cultural as- aspect, Steve? Yeah, um, I think in, in general, I, I was uh, I grew up in one town in upstate New York, small town. And it was pretty diverse, wasn't as diverse as the military, it wasn't diverse. And I never really thought about it. I never thought about the different cultures because it was not, I didn't live in, like for example, in in parts of some of the bigger cities, like in New York, they'll have, you know, an Italian section and they'll have the Irish section and they'll have, you know, the Hispanic, you know, et cetera. I didn't live in that at all. It was my schools that I went to were um, they were predominantly white, but they were not 100% by any means. Uh, and the neighborhood I lived in was probably probably 80%-ish white. Um, so it was it was pretty diverse. It was interesting though. There was there were less Hispanics in our in our community back then. Um, we had, uh, but I, I think it it kind of goes to it goes. What's really interesting it goes to that. Um, understanding of people and and kind of our uniqueness and you kind of hit on it a little bit John in that piece that if we're more curious as opposed to more fearful about other people 
we'll go a lot further along as long as to some degree we're fearful because if I ask you a question about your background you think I'm asking for a reason that might be something an underlying negative. devious reason or something and if that's what your belief system says because of people like me that have asked you that question before you're going to start off defensive now you may have never been asked that question before but you may have been brought up with the concept that you know certain people will ask you questions about this don't fall into that trap here's what they're trying to get to you know and so that that fearfulness and it's really just a belief system that belief system that I think we all have to break away from that other people and they and our parents give us belief systems to protect us but unfortunately yeah. when they try to protect us they're limiting us and many of us haven't succeeded as well as we could have because we've been we've got that mindset or that belief system that yeah. you know you got to have money to make money or you know the rich are um, you know they only get their money by hurting other people or, or whatever those beliefs is all those belief systems are things that really create that fearfulness and that and even though we don't even know know it's in there sometimes it prevents us from from taking action um, you made me think of the word exposure um, in the sense of being exposed to different cultures and different things. Um, yeah. I hear, uh, I'd listen to a handful of podcasts um, that are predominantly military veterans. So they talk a lot about military related things, um, but a, a heavy topic in, you know, in the last year or so for all of them has been resilience, you know, with all mm -hmm. that's going on in the world, they talk a lot about how they can kind of share their military experience in, <clears throat> excuse me, building and using resilience to help other people be more resilient just in their everyday life. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they talk about exposure is one of the keys, exposing yourself to some hardship. Um, and especially like with parents and kids, proactively exposing them to, to some type of failure in a, a sort of a controlled environment where the cost of failure is very low. And it's like an inoculation. You start inoculating them against dealing ineffectively with failure just by repetition, right? You fail and the parent says, hey, just get back up. Don't worry about it. Learn from it. Keep going. It's cool. Keep going. And I think that exposure also relates to the different cultures because if you're exposed to those different cultures, that I guess I just, I look at it sometimes and I'm baffled at how people see something, see the negative in something um, even describing people as, as a category or, or, or whatever, I, I guess I found it odd because I grew up in such a crazy, diverse family, even I'll give you an example. When I say crazy diverse, <laughs> so my, my mother's maiden name is Smith. Okay. So my cousins on her side of the family, I have a group of cousins, her oldest brother, they grew up in Panama, country of Panama. Her oldest brother married a woman who was 100% Chinese. So my cousins, their last name is Smith. Their, their facial features look like traditional Chinese facial features as, as we would stereotype them, God forbid. And they speak Spanish. <laughs> so they would dumbfound people. 
They would go to school. The first day of school, they'd call Roll. They'd call Smith. And this little Chinese-looking kid raises his hand. And then they go to talk to him, and they're speaking Spanish. And people are like, what in the world? What are you? I have an uncle, my mom's youngest brother. He was in the Marines for 20 years. And he said when he first got in the Marines, when, when you go to the gym, guys worked out in cliques. And they were like, like almost like racial divides, the white guys, the black guys, the Latino guys. And he said, guys, we constantly come up to him and go, what are you, Smith? Because his <laughs> features were just not stereotypically anything clear to them. But because they were Marines, it was kind of like, ah, whatever, you can work out with us. <laughs> I guess that commonality thing. It's like, hey, we're all in the same boat. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what you are, but it kind of ends at curiosity. I can't figure out what you are. From, from the obvious that I can observe. Right. But now that I've asked it, that eh, kind of doesn't really even matter. Yeah. And I think the, the more diversity we're exposed to, the more there's, there's still that curiosity. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter in, in any kind of uh, judgmental sense. It's just a curiosity. Um, yeah. You see, on the surface, we can make a lot of mistakes. Superficially, we can make a lot of mistakes, but if we just pause, I know we started Steve talking about pausing a little bit. If we can just pause for a second, we will start to discover so many interconnections. I just give two brief examples. You can't believe this. So I used to do this uh, storytelling presentations in Nevada, middle of nowhere, <laughs> in which I'll go into the room and I say, I believe we are more connected than we are but we don't discover how many connections we possess until we start telling our stories, until we start listening to each other. Then I'll just present myself as I'm this kind of guy. I grew up in Africa. I've come here to go to uh, graduate school. And these are some of the experiences that I've had in life. Every now and then, John, you won't believe it. I will run into somebody who say, wait a minute, where do you say you grew up? Cameroon, I say, yeah. There's a lady in the room who came to listen to a storyteller, didn't know the origin of the guy. She said, you know what? My daughter used to be a peace cop in your country. Which city from Cameroon? Bamenda. Are you kidding me? Okay. <laughs> I, my daughter, taught in your city. And that, that this is a country with 25 million people. And I'm talking about just 30 people in a room randomly. Wow. And then wow. she say, hey, where can I get that dish called Jaman Jama? I need it so badly. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know where to get it for you here. However, stick around. Let's talk at the end of this presentation because the Cameroon Cultural Society in Reno will be hosting an event in about one month. I'm flying out to DC to do a presentation there, but I put in touch with my wife. She'll be cooking that meal and I make sure that you can eat it and you can let her know or to interact. Maybe you get, get to know where to find more of that. On the surface, when we walk into the room, we're all strangers. But by the time we walk out, when we started telling our story, we're connected. Another guy, I said to them, one of my favorite teachers was an American Peace Corps. I had many of them, but the one that was my favorite was the one that taught math and another guy that taught biology. And then there's a guy inside that room who said, I, did you say there was an American who taught math in Cameroon? I said, yes. He said he grew up in Bay Area. He had a teacher from Cameroon who also taught him math. This is a random day. Now, this, 
and this is like less than 30 people. I saw that over and over and over. When we start to talk and be sincere, be candid, go beyond the superficial, we start to see connections. But the last thing I want to also mention, the second example is that 2015, I got selected to do a, a talk in Singapore for TED, TEDx 50th anniversary. They were asking me to talk about different types of Africans. Why? Because Singapore is a tiny little country talked in the heart of Asia. Six million people. And there are not too many Africans there. But there are. Not too many. They asked me, what kind of African are you? Because we see there's so many types. Everywhere I go, they, they think that I'm African-American. And I tell them, no, I'm not African-American. I've studied in America, but I cannot claim that I don't have the African-American experience. And I don't speak like a typical African-American. But everywhere I go, guess what they're doing? They say, oh, you look like uh, Denzel Washington. Oh, you look like that person. I'm like, no, I don't even look like Denzel. Denzel is much taller. <laughs> <laughs> then I, so I, I broke down my talk into, <clears throat> I said, as far as I understood, there are like seven types of Africans. Africans like me, born and raised in Africa. Turns out there are white dudes who have lived for almost 300 years in South Africa who are as African as I am. They're in South Africa, they speak South African languages or in Kenya. Then I incidentally had a Chinese guy, just to, to, to round up your case, John, who is Chinese South African. His great-great-grandparents migrated from Taiwan. But this guy speaks Zulu and local South African languages more than I could ever learn to, even though I may have a natural African tongue. But on the surface, you see him as a pure Chinese guy. But Mac is not a Chinese guy. He's an African dude. And then I said, okay, there are Africans from Southern America who speak Portuguese. There are Africans who grew up in Europe. They have nothing with the African experience except that they have African screen or the black, if, if it means anything. <laughs> and then I said, there are also, of course, African-Americans, then there are immigrants. And I said, it is even hard to define who somebody is. And then I said to them, listen, even though I'm African, I've lived in Singapore for 10 years and I speak the local languages. Then I was saying in Chinese, then I was insist and I say, hey guys, you may look at me, I look African. I'm actually an African guy, but I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a Singaporean and I served in the in the in the in the fire service there. And so don't call me African, call me as much as you call me African, also call me Singaporean. And then people are like, whoa. <laughs> so anyway, it, it, just it call was, me Gideon. <laughs> the whole, yeah, the whole book by its cover thing is I, it's interesting too. I, I wonder. Fantastic story. <clears throat> I wonder how much you guys have experienced um, when someone <clears throat> judges you based on whatever, how you look or where they think you're from or so, some perception, some surface level perception. I'm curious if you've ever experienced, well, I've experienced quite a bit where people, they almost get frustrated trying to reconcile their expectation with the reality they've faced. Right. Mm -hmm. So just simple example. Uh, I grew up in South Florida. Uh, just this one time I was, I was out eating and at the end of the meal, the guy comes and said, would you like coffee? He said it in Spanish. My Spanish is not very good, but good enough that I understood him. And I, I replied in Spanish. He then immediately started speaking Spanish to me so fast. I couldn't understand a word he was saying, <laughs> even if I had understood every word, 
I probably, even if I knew every word, I, I wouldn't have understood it just because how, how quickly he talked. So I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I, my Spanish is not very good. Could, uh, could you slow down? Something along those lines, right? And it turned into an inquisition. He said, what do you mean you don't speak Spanish? You look Spanish. Where are you from? Where's your mother from? Where's your father from? Do they speak Spanish? Right? It went to this whole, he literally got angry at me. Oh, my God. It's... He called me, I believe the term that he used was, um, they call it un Latino repentido, which basically means someone who's ashamed of their culture. Oh my uh, apparently, there, there are some people who, they are Latin, but they, they don't like being Latin or the perceptions or stereotypes of Latins. So they say they don't speak Spanish, whether they do or not, just to, he thought that's what I was doing. I'm like, dude, I just, my Spanish isn't very good. Long story why, but that's just, have you guys ever encountered like a, a situation where someone thought you were something? Deter, oh, you're not what I thought you were. And then it just kind of messed up their, it, it, it threw them well, off. It's interesting. And, and I get it probably significantly less than you two just because of my background and kind of, I'm a little more stereotypical, uh, you know, Caucasian guy. But I had a, uh, you know, my last name is Karski. And I had a guy reach out to me on Facebook recently and he said, Karski, is that Polish? And I said, yes. And he said, so where are you from? Now, that question by itself made me think, well, he thinks I'm from Poland because that's my last name. He knows I'm, right. you know, what, is that, I'm not, what does the question even mean? I'm not speaking to him. Uh, he doesn't. But so I said, you know, I have uh, at least four generations in the United States where I am from in Poland, I have no idea. <laughs> and, and I'm only about maybe 10% Polish. But anyways, it was a situation where, well, do you speak Polish? Well, again, just like you, John, it's been decades that my family has lived in the United States. You know, just like Gideon talked about with the gentleman in, in South Africa, how can he possibly be able to speak Chinese when his family's lived in South Africa for generations. Even that simple oh, yeah. question, where are you from? I have had so many times that that's turned into a long conversation because somebody might ask me that and I might say, oh, Charlotte. They're like, no, mm -hmm. no, no. Like, where are your parents from? Right. Yeah. And I as soon as they too. ask about your parents, now I'm thinking, okay, they're not asking me where I live or where my parents live. They're, they're thinking, what's your ethnic background, right? And I think they're looking for things in common. Which yeah, is it's, you there, know, a natural no thing to do. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. But rather in a way that is not very instructive or constructive, if I may. And I, I think that that's the kind of question that if our folks were to ask yesterday, we might not have seen some of those scenes that we saw. Yes, there is pain on both sides. And if, if we could tie this in, yes, there is pain uh, everywhere. But if you dial back a little bit and you take the questions a little bit, get to know the person first and the rest would unveil itself. So mm -hmm. if I may, I'll say, if both sides of the aisle can talk more about what holds us together, about what the beauty they see in the other person's ideas and not condemn them, I think we'll get to a place whereby we can begin to uh, recreate that fabric that the founding fathers had, that was a very beautiful vision. Had it not been that way, 
I think, honestly, America would not have held together. Mm-hmm. So, but the, the, the fact that those guys were very idealistic, <laughs> yes, they were as human as me and you, but they were equally very, very idealistic. And it's what has held them together to now. So when I went to visit Jefferson's house not too long ago, some people were saying all kinds of negative things. I said, no, forget about it. I love him for who he was. He was a genius. He didn't talk much. He was a brilliant guy. Yes, he had his humanity. But if you can discard all someone's weaknesses, what else do you remain of? What, what, what remains of that person? So I like the fact that he was brilliant. And yes, he had his own uh, humanity. And I want people to see me for who I am. And yes, I have my own humanity. But take the best of what we have. See the beauty in the order. That, that's my way that I would say <clears throat> And you make a really good point, Gideon, because when this country started, they did not just all agree on the outcome of that vision. I mean, they were fervently uh, arguing about their points. And and then once that vision was decided, that's when they united together and uh, and moved forward. Um, so even though nobody had that one vision, it was collectively brought together and they were extremely emotional about their own positions about the way it should be designed so very interesting tone i just one quick thing and then i I just realized it's a few minutes after 10 and gideon's gotta take off um tony robbins uh has a question that he talks about um he says that all all behaviors have at their core a positive intent even those that on the surface seem negative right and he what he coaches people to ask themselves and or the other person, if they're interacting with somebody about some specific behavior, what is the positive intent underneath here? And he uses an extreme example of like the Nazis in World War II exterminating the Jews. Well, how could there possibly be any positive anything there? His point was in their mind, in the Nazis' mind, they, they, had what they believed to be a positive intent. So it's not a, a moral judgment of what we think is positive or negative, but what is this person in their mind perceiving as the positive intent that's driving their behavior? And if we can at least start to understand that, it gives us a better starting point to go, okay, I, I think at least I, I understand a little better where he's coming from. I still think he's a little twisted or he's off or he's wrong or whatever our judgment is, right? I mean, if, if there's violence involved, eh, I, I got a moral issue with that. But I can still try to ask that question. These people that were storming the Capitol, somewhere in their mind were thinking that there's a wrong going on that I'm helping correct. And as much as I disagree with how they went about doing that, and maybe even their logic or whatever, that at least helps me understand, okay, that's what's driving that behavior. So if, if maybe somehow that helps get the conversation started to try to, you know, resolve some of this stuff. I've always found that question hard to remember in the heat of the moment, but very instructive if you sit back and think about it. It's a great way to end this segment, John. Very well, very well stated. And I love that question. (laughs) 